Greetings to your listener, and thank you for choosing to listen to this episode of Ego Exposed. I wanted to take a minute to apologize for the lengthy delay between the last episode and this one, both to my gracious friend and guest, Quift, and to you, the listening audience. Due to prior obligations, I have not had as much time to devote to managing this podcast. My focus has been on a side business that is growing. I believe I also overworked myself at some point, or just the gradual buildup of the stresses of stretching oneself too thin began to wear on me. So this podcast took a back seat while my priorities shifted. To me, this is no excuse, but at least an explanation, which I feel I owe you, since you are gracious with your time and have allowed my voice into your ear cavities. With that being said, you should also know that this episode was recorded on March 24th, 2018, and is therefore somewhat dated in the events that were discussed. Due to my guest's lack of a great microphone, the audio quality is a bit on the grainier side. However, with all that taken into consideration, I still think that it is a great episode and worth your time and attention. There is another episode on the editing room floor at the moment, and I have guests who would like to be on the show, so I feel great things are brewing for Ego Exposed. And I myself am feeling re-energized with renewed vigor and excitement for this podcast. With that, on with the show. Kind of the creation of, I guess the uh, the corporate corporate corporatocracy. Ooh, that's a hard word to say. It's 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 a hard word to say. to Ego Exposed. I'm your host, Jonathan, and I've got a friend of mine, Quift, with me today. We're going to be discussing geopolitics and uh, the current situation that's going on in the world around us. Uh, Quift, say hello. Hello, everyone. And uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. So where are you from and what do you do and what's your interest in geopolitics? Okay, so uh, I'm in Stockholm. Uh, I'm a Swedish or French, so that's the global perspective. This is a, this is a very European perspective on things. Uh, I uh, work as a uh, web analyst, uh, and uh, but I've studied uh, a long time ago. I studied uh, uh, political science and uh, international economics at university. Uh, and uh, from there, it's basically, well, I started with that because I was already interested in politics, of course. Uh, and after those years of neoliberal indoctrination, I got, uh, I uh, managed to extradite those mind viruses a few years later to develop a more critical sense, let's say, of what is actually going on and how much freedom do we really bring to the third world. Very cool, very cool. Yeah, so definitely got that uh, neoliberal indoctrination there, the uh, education machine. Oh, yeah. It's funny, but my wife studied uh, political science in uh, Slovenia. 
uh, a few years after the war. And uh, they had, uh, let's say, very much more critical point of view at that university. And the professors were really blunt about what was really going on and uh, about what had happened during the war and uh, everything. Any uh, specific examples? Well, um, let's say that the Yugoslavian uh, wars, as we perceive them through the media in the West, that's not quite the true story of what happened on the ground. Very much like, uh, well, it, it ties back basically into the, the weapons of mass destruction that Saddam Hussein had. Oh, so, right, the, the weapons that he had, that he definitely had without a shadow of a doubt. The weapons just, that he definitely had, we just have to, um, I just haven't found them yet. Yeah, they, they never did show up, did they? No, they never did. Um, anyway. <laughs> oh, uh, my, my wife just got in here and, and uh, spilled the beans. Yeah, the Slovenians had no qualms about saying it as this. The banks are ruling this. Absolutely agree with that. Uh, so that was she was taught in university. And that was in Slovenia? That was in Slovenia. Very cool. In Ljubljana. Well, hello, Cliff's wife. Welcome to the show. <laughs> yeah, she's in the, she went back to uh, putting our little baby to sleep. Oh. Well, we, we will let her do her thing. Uh, yeah. Uh, so the definitions, uh, we want to lay some ground rules out on kind of what we're going to be talking about. You know, when we talk about geopolitics, we're talking about the politics of the world, how the different countries and entities interact with one another, and why do people, why do countries do what they do? Is that pretty much it? Or well, yes and no. I mean, that, that is the that is the most common understanding of it. Uh, even though that could also go into uh, international relations, which is something else different. Uh, basically, we're looking at the interplay between geography and, and uh, politics. So geopolitics. Uh, so we're talking about, uh, we're not necessarily talking about countries, but we're always talking about place. So you can see how ignorant uh, I am on this subject. Uh, well, yeah, take it, take it away. Keep going. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's not, it, it's not that, uh, it's just, like all sciences, um, in some way occulted. Uh, it's not that weird yet, really. Uh, when we look at that world map, we see all these lines, and now if it's colored, we have all these political entities all in the separate color, and there are very rigid lines between them, and uh, that is the map. The territory is uh, something very, is a very different beast. I mean, there you have, uh, on no international map, we have all the countries nicely laid out. Do you have also all the American military bases, for example? You do not on any world map see that the largest military concentration of force in the world is Diego Garcia Islands in the middle of the Pacific, or the Indian Ocean. That's where the largest, uh, you said the, Amer the largest American military forces? Yeah, the, the largest military base in the world. There's a smack dab in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And there's a reason for that. 
because from there you can control world trade, which all ties into control of the Indian Ocean. So when we talk about geopolitics, we talk about trade flows, controlling over specific points, key points for a trade public for reasons of controlling trade, for reasons of controlling military uh, activity and have the military possibilities and uh, controlling. So it's uh, basically you have this you have strategic points uh, in, in on the map. And who control? And that's basically the chessboard. So, what would be some of the strategic points that you're talking about? Um, some very obvious ones would be uh, uh, the oh, uh, the Suez Canal, of course. To control the Suez Canal is to control trade between Europe and Asia. And, and uh, Asia. Uh, you also have the Panama Canal. For the very same reasons, there's a big reasons why the Panama is does not is a separate country, let's say, uh, which is of course uh, uh, Panama as a country is a fictitious entity as the corporations registered that. Right, and that was the whole uh, Panama Papers uh, deal that came out last year as well, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that was uh, that was a reference. Uh, but I mean, you also have the, the creation of the country of Panama, which is was the result of an American military excursion to lay hands on that strategic point and not allow a, uh, the Central American Republic time, to control that trade node. So then you have the invasion, and you have the, uh, the of the independence movements, of course, the repressed minorities living in Panama that were saved. Always have to remember those. <laughs> so uh, that was, but that was about a hundred years ago. So from that, that we can learn that more things change, more things stay the same. And in general, when we talk about geopolitics, nothing has changed since uh, the war between Athens and Sparta, which is uh, the quintessential geopolitics. A geopolitical conflict. You have the land empire of Sparta versus the maritime empire of commerce, which is Athens. You have the logic of the land empire and of the sea empire. Those are always in conflict with each other. That's an overall theme. Because they, all, they both have different visions of how the world should be. And so you, you say the land empire and the, the maritime who would those be today? Who would be like on the maritime side and, and the who maritime would be on the land? Is the US. Which is, I mean, the, the, you can see on any military force chart, you always see the US being this huge military power compared to anyone else. And that is, the, that is basically the US Navy. And navies are exceptionally expensive. Now, the U.S. Navy, it's basically what backs the U.S. dollar. Because the U.S. guards all sea routes, and therefore all international trade is denominated in dollar, and thus insured in Wall Street. Right, because I guess, obviously, you can't trade with other countries if you can't get to them by boat. Exactly. Or by train, but that is uh, just a different beast, and that we'll, we'll talk more about trains, trains later. And what about air? Like, uh, 
I guess they can't really carry as much, and it's more. Ex- is it more expensive? Air, air trade is. Uh, I mean, it's has no real economic impact. There are some. I mean, flowers are flown in, but most things go by boats. Right, because obviously the heavy stuff is very expensive to fly, and you can't fly as much as you could on a boat. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a cost thing. I mean, uh, for to move things by air is ridiculously expensive. So you would have to have either a very, very valuable cargo, uh, diamonds, or, uh, or yeah, flowers, actually, uh, or very, very time-sensitive cargo. Uh, but anyway, those are, so, yeah, air trade is not something you basically, but also if you look at air trade, that would also, it, you, you cannot fly how you want without the American Navy having you in their sights, so to speak. Right, right, because they could obviously still control the air over the uh, the seas and launch yeah. fighters from aircraft carriers, etc., but, but what it basically have is control over the sea, gives control over international commerce, gives control over the monetary policies of the world, basically, through the Federal Reserve. And that is ties back into... Like, this is basically how, how the American Empire came to be and how it works, and why uh, the USA can afford to have such a huge navy. Basically, the rest of the world pays the U.S. for its the American navy, because by, you can always print. The Federal Reserve can print more money, then export those dollars in exchange for actual goods and services. And then the backing is just the protection that it's going to continue to be there, pretty much. Yeah. So the printing machine of the U.S. just goes, I mean, just run around, and the U.S. then can always exchange a hundred. If you print a hundred dollar bill, you can exchange that hundred dollar bill for one hundred dollar bills of goods for the printing cost. But any other country in the world would have to actually create goods. Are you with me so far? Yeah, definitely. I was actually. Uh pulling up a world map because I thought that would be pretty useful to look at during okay, this and yeah. I'm, I'm very ill-prepared today. Yeah, but a world map, a world map is, a good, is a good and handy idea because we are going to talk quite a lot about geography and uh, there are plenty of places in the world that you may not really know where they are. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far as speaking from uh, an American education, like back when I was learning world geography in you know, elementary mm-hmm. school, so that would be like grades... One through five, um, I, I was probably like, I don't know, third or fourth or fifth grade, and so you'd be about nine or ten years old, and they would give you an outline of the continent um, with the countries outlined as well, and we'd have to memorize where each country was on the continent and write it in, and that was our test, and that was how we learned geography. But you did that, you know, what maybe one year, and then you were expected to know it going on forward uh, yeah. but yeah it's like if, if you ask the average person you know where Libya is on the map or where uh, Mongolia is or Sweden they probably couldn't point to it I mean I know I couldn't for most of these 
which is sad, but it's just not one of the things I'm well studied in. But I feel like you have well, to you have to know you have to be able to see it to understand this because it's a very visual thing. You're seeing where these landlocked areas are, or these um, you know channels, the Suez Canal and the Panama Canal, like and how they connect the different areas together. Yeah. Uh, exactly. So it's uh, poli the politics of the map. That's geopolitics. So are there any places that would be able to sustain themselves without trade? Like, uh, you know, you, you look at a place like North Korea, who doesn't really trade that we know of outside of China, and they have a ton of restrictions on them. And... Uh, I mean, if you look, I mean, if you look at the, the United States... Doesn't really need to trade, for instance. Okay. It's, uh, I mean, it has been a political positions of the Republicans of all the isolationists that the United States could live and should live in uh, uh, what was it? isolated splendor. Uh, a country that uh, uh, the, the technical term of this is autarky. But basically, it's trade independence. I mean, then uh, the United States is energy independent, thus does not need to import uh, energy. You know, it's the breadbasket of the world. You don't need to import food either. And I mean, there are mines, there are forests, there are, yeah, but most of the things, everything except rare earths. And I mean, arguably, I would; those aren't even really needed unless you start talking about you know, higher technology and living in with a modern day convenience and, you know, cell phones and computers and weaponry yeah, and everything. Yeah, recyclable. So, I mean, you could actually, and will have to reuse phones and if you don't want to live on Earth. Basically, I would say any place on Earth could be more or less self-sustainable if you didn't live in a consumer culture. But if you live in a consumer culture, you cannot live, but no place on Earth can sustain itself in a consumer culture, since for consumer culture to exist, some place else needs to pay a heavy price of exploitation and, uh, yeah, of exploitation. So consumerism, I mean, definitely, I mean, would you call that like a zero-sum game? If you add something here, you have to take it away from somewhere else. So like, if I want to have an iPhone, I've got to have you know, the resources come out of, say, mines in the Congo or or whatnot? No, the, the problem is not... The, uh, the problem is not us having smartphones. The problem is us having smartphones that break down after two years and that needs to be replaced. That is the... I mean, technically, I mean, you could build things which lasted forever. And if you ever... Wonder. I mean, if you go back to our grandparents' time, they bought things that had high quality. At least my grandparents did. And, uh, they bought things of good quality that still work today, a hundred years later. I mean, if you take care of it, you need to oil it and squeeze it. But I mean, things are robust, man. They hold and they're durable. But and now, if they if did it, break, they'd fix it. Sorry. I said if they broke, they could be able to repair it, or you know, if a chair leg fell off, they can put a new one on. Now, if it breaks, we just—you're right—we throw it in the garbage and we go to IKEA and buy a new one, or Walmart, or yeah. Amazon. 
wherever. Yeah, but also because nothing that we have is actually fixable. It's crap. And that, that is the essence of consumer culture. So it's not about having high living standards. It's about me having to constantly buy shit and replace old shit, which broke. If you buy a washing machine today, it will last you five years. It, it costs nothing, and of course you can finance it and everything. I mean, you used to be able to buy a washing machine and have it for 30 years. Or even just a manual washing machine and, and scrub it, you know, on the washboard when we had time to yeah, do but, that. Yeah, but to be utterly honest... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to do that either. Women, women used to spend a lot of time doing laundry. There's a, there's a very interesting correlation between women's liberation and uh, washing machines. Hmm. Well, I, I am thankful for the washing machine, and, and that is a convenience that I would like to keep, but... Huh, that's that's yeah, interesting. Course, I hadn't heard that. It's not the convenience or the quality of life that is the issue. The issue is the basic crap quality of uh, what modern slave labor produces. So basically, I think because these children works in these uh, slave factories, they don't have the sense of quality that our grandparents did. And that's to, yeah, put it very bluntly, very harsh and. That is the reality of the thing, and try to put a smile on it. So let's talk about, well, let's ask the question why, and see if we can trace it back to the root. Okay, so let's trace it back to the East India Company. Because it's the study of the world as it is today, it all begins with the East India Companies. Uh, I don't know, uh, I just threw this at you, I don't know if you have, how you react on it. I mean, I'm I'm vaguely familiar with the East India Trading Company. I know I've read about them. Um, you hear them referenced in I mean, history books that the, it was the first real big trading company, consolidated trading company. It's also the world's first real corporation with stocks and shareholders and uh, legal protections and a charter and everything. So uh, basically, the modern world started the Portuguese. Uh, Put it very, very quickly. We'll start with uh, at the 1600s, and Spain found India. No, uh, Port Portugal. Portugal found India, and sailed to India around the south of Africa, and they, they did this because to cut past the Arabian middlemen that had handled the business of the end, uh, between India and Europe before where all that trade went through Egypt, where the Mamluks were uh, the dominant uh, trading power. The Mamluks were a very fascinating country run by slaves, by the way. The ruling caste of the Mamluks were the slave soldiers. And the entire country was run by slaves who basically owned everything and were imported from Georgia. And they ruled all the free people. Anyway, history is fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so to cut past the middlemen, uh, the Portuguese, which were of course in the far end of uh, every trade route, uh, sailed to India. And uh, we can go into Templar conspiracies later because it definitely may 
as a, as a part here. Portugal then established a few military bases in uh, the Arabian Sea and started to, and then decided to everyone's surprise that everyone who sailed on the sh uh, in their sea had to pay them a tax. So they took on a tariff on all the trade in the Arabian Sea, which was 80% of the world economy at the time. Because India was rich, uh, modern day Iraq, and Iran, and uh, Yemen, and uh, east of Africa, all of those countries were rich. Europe was poor as fuck. But, Europe, but the Europeans had developed cannons and sail ships with cannons, which is the big thing. The entire notion of putting cannons on a boat and use that to shoot down other boats as a European invention. And it's also basically the basic innovation that led to European might later on. So the Portuguese controlled the spice trade, the trade with China. They got Macau in China as a trading island. They started to do the trade with Japan. And then the Portuguese started doing basically the trade between Brazil, Europe, all the way back to Japan and got fabulously wealthy. Uh, so the Dutch said, if they can do it, we can do it better. And of course, the Dutch were Protestants and the Portuguese Catholics. So the Dutch had no qualms at all about starting slaughtering the fellow Christians. And the Dutch started the Vok, Vos Indische Company, which is the Dutch uh, East India Company. So basically they started and then they com competed out the Portuguese uh, and took a lot of land and bases, and specifically in Indonesia, which is a Dutch colony. And then the English decided to get to, to play along and they started their charter company, the East India Company, which later was prominent uh, a lot in India. In the end, you will find yourself having three companies in ruling all of Asia, all of Africa, and all of uh, the Americas. The Hudson Bay Company ruling what is today United States and Canada. Uh, the East Indi West India Company ruling the Caribbeans and Brazil, and uh, all the trade from the Amer Af uh, Americas. And then uh, the African and uh, Asian colonies. And all world trade being denominated by Europeans. All were, and in the end, the British competed out everyone else. So all global trade being delivered in pounds sterling. And this is basically how it worked. This uh, four, five hundred years of history of European rise to prominence by taking control of trading ports and tariffs on global trade and from their controlling global monetary policy, which rendered all the exploited countries poor. India used to have higher living standards than Britain and also a thriving industry. India had the world's largest manufacturing, uh, textile manufacturing and stood for like 80% of uh, global manufacturing textiles. Till the British managed to kill that and move it all to Liverpool. Hmm. So they would just 
like fire on the uh, the coast? I mean, would they send armies in to invade India, or what? I mean, why didn't the Indian people fight back? I guess were they no, not they able to? Before, I mean, there are several large insurrections. This, uh, this is basically a, uh, it took centuries for the Brits to uh, subjugate India. And when I say India at this point, it's, uh, it's India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Who are British India? Um, it took centuries for the for the East India Company, because it was not a crown endeavor; it was a company endeavor. So what you have is entire countries being ruled by companies with a very with a brutality that only a corporation is capable. And this is the ghost that has come back to haunt us here now today, where the corporocracy sweeps back and takes control of also the center. So the East, you, we started with this. It all began with the uh, the East India Trading Company, and so this is kind of the creation of, I guess, the uh, the corporate corporate corporatocracy. Ooh, that's a hard yeah. word to say. Yeah, and capitalism. So that's where it started. And what what time frame are you uh, talking about here? Uh, the last three hundred years. It's, it's an older phenomenon. That's when it really started to become uh, very dominant. But I mean, there uh, there are the entire world back then was very different from how we think about it today. The, the French lost a war against the British, and they had to choose in the peace treaties between modern-day Haiti and Canada, the present country of Canada or the present country of Haiti. The French got to keep one, and the British would take the other. The French decided to keep Haiti, and the Brits got Canada. And, that, and for the French, this was an evident choice. Because Haiti stood for 25% of the French crown's revenue. While Canada was just miles and miles and miles of forest. And obviously not as important as the uh, the trade routes. Obviously not as important as the trade route and the sugar plantations on uh, Haiti. But I mean, that, Haiti was the world's most profitable colony at the time. And the reason why it's poor today is uh, because when uh, it's because after the French Revolution, the slaves on Haiti decided that they too were humans, and thus they too had human rights, thus self-determination. So they revolted and got their independence. It was the first black republic in the world, the first uh, and the first actual case of of slaves successfully revolting and throwing off the oppressors. So this was, of course, an enormously scary event, not for white people, but for the slave-exploiting corporations that were running the Americas, the, yeah, all of the Americas and plantations everywhere. So they imposed a uh, situation to ensure that this uh, former color, that this new republic, would fail. They imposed a demand on it of several billion francs 
to repay. And Haiti repaid that to that debt to France in the 90s. And of course they had to, because if they didn't, it would be shut out from international trade. Which is very hard if the only produce you have is sugar. Yeah, so basically Haiti is, a failed, is a, almost a failed state, because Western sanctions were imposed on it, and demands that had to be paid, you know, in full, for them to participate in world trade, for two, for 150 years, or something like that, to guarantee that they did not succeed, so that no other exploited slaves, or blacks for that matter, anywhere else in the world, would get uppity. Mm. That's the world we live in. That's awful. My family used to own a large slave plantation there. I mean, uh, this, uh, yeah. So when people say, and that's funny. So when you look at these countries, they are so poor, and they're, yeah, they are so poor, because someone showed up there with a huge gunboat and extorted money. So let's. So you start um, to see the bigger picture of white people in gunboats extorting money at gunpoint from brown people for a few hundred years. Yeah, I was. Uh, it was That's showing like 1600s. Yeah, so 400 years it's been going on, and then the colonists to America in 1700s, mid 1700s. Yeah. And then, so, after the Revolutionary War, uh, we started, I guess, developing the Navy and everything, and ha ha tell, let's talk about that a little bit. How did the mm -hmm. United States rise into the maritime superpower that it is? Oh, it basically, uh, uh, the city, uh, London, moved operations after the Second World War because the UK were uh, was too much in debt. So the, the the United the British maintained this stranglehold on the empire till the Second World War. But how, doing war is ruinous. No matter if you win or lose. And then you have I mean the the British uh, sort of maintaining the fleet, developing airports, putting everything work and everything. It ruined the British Empire, so they had to basically sell it. Basically, the Brits sold the empire to the American banking families. Who then entered the Bretton Woods Agreements, which is uh, where... The, the end of the gold back dollar, right? the Second World War, no one else had any fleet left. The, British, the German fleet had been uh, bombed to smithereens. The French fleet had been uh, bombed to smithereens by the British. Uh, while they were still allied, by the way, my grandfather was on one of those boats. He never forgave the perfidious Albion for that. Uh, and uh, the British fleet was in, uh, yeah, was in the States. So I mean, the Americans were the only game player. The American fleet was the only one left in left. And so they absorbed into one another. Is that what you're saying? I mean, the I mean, these are corporations. So corporations would have headquarters, ownership changes, 
uh, I mean, the, the easiest way to put it would be that a lot of uh, West India corporation operations moved to Wall Street, and uh, the American families increased their ownership. Because when we talk about these, I mean, we talk about countries, but really we are talking about owners of corporations and thus families and dynasties. And the borders are more here for the uh, benefit of the uneducated masses, such as myself, right? The borders are, have legal meaning. I mean, that's what they are. They are, uh, they are administrative divisions, and each painted blot has its own separate constitution and legal system and policies, and often also language or the nation state and everything. But we have to remember that the map is not a territory, and corporocracy is not ruled by country. It's ruled by corporations. And corporations generally think that people power is a very bad idea. That's the constant need to shift sovereignty from nations to, uh, to international trade agreements. Like if you have the, uh, due to NAFTA or the IEPP or SIPA or whatever trade agreement you have, all of them basically function the same way. They move power away from countries and nations to some uh, abjuration board somewhere. And uh, they become higher than law. So with each new uh, big trade deal signed, democracy decreases directly. Which is, by the way, why Trump is against them. And so when you start talking about these corporations creating these trade agreements, uh, I mean, this, this sounds like what I would think I, you know, globalism is. The, there's oh, still yeah, borders that, yeah, there, but, exactly it. and no restrictions on trade and, and everybody yeah, is. Globalism is the, is the, what, what is really called is neoliberalism. It has been, it's, uh, that's the ideology. And the problems Americans can't accept it because uh, when you critique neoliberalism in general, you do tend to say things like capitalism is fucking awful. But Americans are so indoctrinated think capitalism is awesome and they want some war. So they can't really critique capitalism. Capitalism is corporocracy. It's ruled by the shareholders. That's what it is. That is not the same thing as a free market. And so what would be the, the difference in a corporate, corporatocracy versus a free market? Well, a, a corporation is a fictitious entity which only exists in a legal way. It's not an actual person. Right, just some guys got together and said, you know, oh, we're going to make a company together, and then it's treated as its own entity. Yeah, and that entity in turn owns other entity, which in turn owns other entities in a sort of conglomerate of... So all these, I mean, from an occult perspective, these are basically all demons. Take time, I mean, egregores. They are summoned, given shape, 
legal personhood and a, and a purpose. And then they will do everything in their power to fulfill that purpose. And in occultism, these are dangerous because they do tend to drain the life force of their creator in search of to fulfill their purpose. Like the Mises from uh, Rick and Morty. <laughs> Yeah, basically, basically, that's capitalism. You have a bunch of people pushing a button, up pops a E6, and the guy says, make me rich. And the E6 starts uh, to exploit someone somewhere and take his money. So, I mean, capitalism is, I mean, if, if you look at the United States today and all, all of the Western world, capitalism is working exactly as intended. It is creating a fascist, dictator, totalitarian surveillance state where you have no rights and can basically be exploited as a slave and then thrown into a ditch where you will starve to death when you serve the purpose of these corporations. And someone yes. will make money off of you while you're in that ditch as well. Oh yeah, ditch cleaners, government contracts. Yeah, that is, I mean, prison. The, the modern day American prison system is basically slave labor at this point. I mean, that's who punches, uh, and I know, well, you can say, I mean, that's who, like, punches our license plates. Any extra steps. So, sorry, what now? The American prison system is slavery with barely any extra steps. Okay, it's, it's awful. I mean, you three work in more <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I know this is awful, but I've never seen, uh, more than, like, four episodes of Rick and Morty, so okay. it's, uh. Sorry if I'm not getting your references there. I, I saw okay. Mr. Meeseeks episode. Uh, I do reference. Uh, I, I'll stop them. <laughs> no, no, no. You're good. I'm, I I need to catch up and watch it because uh, it's such a good show, and I really don't have a good excuse except I don't watch a lot of television. So, but uh, anyway. Um, anyway, it's right. <laughs> So, but yeah, I I just wanted to say, uh, you know, like prison labor, they they create products for us uh, i mean there's I, I was using the license plate example they're printed in prisons um and they're paid you know le less than minimum wage a lot less than minimum wage and the, they use their pay like a dollar to, a day or something like that yeah I, I even cheaper than that i mean some of them 50 cents or a quarter a day um or something like a quarter an hour it's, it's, it's awful and then they use that money to buy things out of the commissary which are overpriced you know soap might cost ten dollars or or a pack of ramen might cost, you know, two dollars, and it, it's like it costs pennies to make. Plus, it's fucking awful for you. But it, they're being exploited like that. Um, and granted, I think that they should, you know, suffer some kind of punishment because they, well, not not all crimes that this is, but like for murder, that's a crime against, you know, the, the community. Are you kidding me? The American prison system. I mean. Well, let's. I mean, I. Some people do. Most prisoners are American. What's that? The majority of the world's prisoners are American. Right, and, and American prisons population is larger than the rest of the world's prison population combined. Man, I mean, that's it's it's fucking awful. Okay, look at a, look at a, look, look at a country like a totalitarian dictatorship. Uh, which has abolished the death penalty, like China. With 1.2 billion people in it. Now, I'd say, yeah, arguably, 
you won't know how many you you couldn't know how many people are actually in in prison. I mean that doesn't get factually reported, so it's still going to be an estimate. Yeah, but I mean, in general, pr- prisons are very difficult to run for profit in a country where it's, where labor is as cheap as it is, as it is, as it is in China. Yeah, so it's uh, it is awful. Oh yeah, uh, I think the technical term is morally repulsive. That's very Perhaps. true. Yeah, but yeah, it's uh, I mean the American prison system is a for profit, slave labor. Uh, yeah, but um, but at least Hillary Clinton, who is uh, partly responsible for that wonderful prison complex. Wasn't a sexist. Yeah, anyway, so. Uh, <laughs> we got a little off track here, I think. Yeah, we got a little off track there. So, so basically, ge- geopolitics, looking at the world as it really is, and looking at the money flows and control over key geographic points. So, so we are not looking at a map, we're looking at the territory. Okay, so ignore, ignoring most of the maps. borders. Right, right. We're crea- creating new countries based on the existing geography and how uh, control is uh, used by or created by power. Power creates yeah. control over these areas. Yeah, that's one way to view it. I would say, uh, have you ever played uh, Europa Universalis? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, it's a highly recommended game, so I spent hundreds of hours doing it. You can play as basically any country in the world, uh, from the Renaissance to uh, up to the Victorian age. Battle for colonies, colonized countries, make wars and uh, do reformation and everything. And uh, in, the, in the game, which takes place in the real world, you have what are called map modes. So you can look at a political mode, then you look at the countries that usually do. You can look at culture, then you see how cultures are dispersed. Religious mode, you can see religions. Trade mode, trade, etc. Trade goods. So you have uh, 24 different ways to view the map. Depending on what you're looking at. It's pretty cool. It's quite cool. And it teaches you a lot about the world. And about the importance of keeping your inflation in check. <laughs> uh, anyway, this is a more useful way of seeing it. Depending on what we want to look at, we use a different map. And no map is more, not, is more true than any other. I mean, in the end, a map is uh, lines drawn in the sand. Some of these lines people have died for. Some of them were drawn um, at a conference in Berlin 200 years ago. That's crazy to think about. Oh, yeah. uh... Anyway, so uh, this is reality. And then, of course, we have uh, many of the world's present-day conflicts are due to those maps drawn in uh, drawing rooms in uh, British castles. Like, for instance, the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan divides the Pashtun population of the world in half. 
or the, uh, these are the people that you in the US would know as the Taliban. Hmm. And they're, of course, quite miffed about you know being forced to live as minorities in two different countries. Especially since there are majority population in one of the countries that are forced to live under rule of their Western-backed minorities who try to suppress their language. And are you referencing the... Uh, this the, is Afghanistan. Afghanistan, and that's the, the Sunni and the Shiite? No, no, they are all... Uh, uh, they are all, all Sunni there. So this is more an ethnic thing than a religious thing. The Pashtuns, who are the majority population in the southern uh, Afghanistan, and also where half of the population live in uh, Pakistan as a minority, where they are also a minority because Pakistan is insanely populous, uh, they are uh, they are Sunni, but uh, from the Iranian language family. In north, you have uh, Tajiks and Uzbeks and uh, Kyrgyz who are Turkic-speaking speaking peoples. And then all the all the stans north of Afghanistan, so Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and uh, Tajikistan, they had the borders drawn by Stalin so that they would never be able to maintain independence from Russia. And all African countries have their borders drawn so that independence would be as hard as possible so they would all be dependent on Western aid, like cut from the sea or uh, divided or like the border goes right so that you don't have access to a river you need or yeah, and stuff like that. So you, yes, you need to always be in conflict with your neighbor. These are all the borders in Africa drawn for that specific purpose. Wow, and I guess the the reason they don't redraw, like the governments of these African nations, don't redraw them themselves, is that they would have to, some of them would have to give up land to their neighbors, and I'm sure oh, that oh, you so know nothing to do with that. No, I mean no. The, the governments of these people do not represent the the people. The, Are, uh, I mean they have they have had several revolutions, but in general, I mean. Uh, if you get a popular leader and he gets elected and he wants to do things and be a progressive and do give uh, do things that people want and everything, he gets assassinated or replaced in a military coup uh, by junta or something like that. Oh, bless you. No, uh, that was my wife. Uh, <laughs> she says thank you. Uh, I mean, so uh, and uh, that's. Uh, the Brits, the French, and the Americans take turns about, you know, uh, sponsoring military dictatorships in Africa. But they're, uh, are, are they paid off by these corporations? The American dictatorships, which are more uh, American in turn. So are like they... The coup the you uh, guys did in Guatemala, Hillary Clinton did in Guatemala a few years ago, or the... Uh, the thing in Brazil uh, three years ago. So would they be, um, are, are they paid off, if they're not assassinated, um, are they paid off by these corporations in order to, to enforce the policies that uh, the United States and the, the Brits want? Basically it's mining rights. 
So you say, I mean, the, the country's leader is installed, everyone pretends he is legitimate, he signs away the mining rights for uh, raw materials or petrol or whatever he wants. He's then given security, which is basically CIA trained, trained death squads. And uh, all his money is put into a Swiss bank account. And if he doesn't get it out, and uh, of course he's greedy, so I mean, the German, the Swiss bank account always increases in value, as long as he happens to stay in power. But then if he would die, all that money disappears. Like Gaddafi's, uh, the few billions that Gaddafi had in a uh, Belgian bank. And now, of course, uh, his son, who is, uh, tries to rebuild Libya, uh, wants that money back. And it's gone, it's disappeared. Which is why Sarkozy had to report to the police station, because that was, you know, a bit too obvious, and we have to make a show of actually having some sort of justice. Oh, the start of geopolitics will turn you very, very cynic, very, very quickly. <laughs> yeah, I could see that. So um, I think we'd like to probably wrap it up soon so we can keep this under an hour, but I definitely want to have you back on so we can continue <laughs> talking about this because I know we've, we've I'm, I'm getting educated. I'm completely ignorant on a lot of this stuff. So this is really nice to, uh, you know, hear what you have to say about it. Uh, I feel like I'm getting some kind of, uh, clarity on what's going on in the world right now, or at least a, you know an understanding of how we might have gotten to this place. But yeah, um, this, this has basically been a historical overview because now the world is shifting, and that's the evil Russia story that I want to talk about, and also Trump. Oh yeah, and, and there's all of these things start to play out. Uh, the this system that I've described has. Uh, it's too expensive, it doesn't really work, and it doesn't go where some people want it to go. So uh, the alternative is being set up. Any, uh, you want to give a sneak hint at what that alternative might be? Are we talking like uh, AI overlord ownership or some form of collective collectivism? No, I would say it's, uh, yeah, oh yeah, uh, it's very Star Trek. I would say that the future is very Star Trek, and that is both a utopia and a horrible dystopia. Because in Star Trek, we always remember the heroes, and we never give a second thought to all those countless dead red shirts. <laughs> yeah, that that is uh, there is not a uh, a peaceful future ahead of us if it is anything like Star Trek. Star Trek. And I think there's a, a lot of potential paths that we could take, um, especially if, if we're going with the Star Trek universe, there is the Borg, which, you know, could be some metaphor for what AI could turn into later on. Um, oh, I would say that the Borg are, uh, they are the, the Marxists, the materialists. I mean, the, that's the end point of materialism. Is the board? Is the board? <laughs> Absolutely if nothing. Find, if we don't manage to re uh, to reunite in spirit, the board is the future. Well, that's a scary thought. 
Oh, you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, do you want to leave us with any last thoughts or anything? And anything no, this that has we... been fun. Uh, this, is, this has been fun. Uh, I will give... Uh, uh, if you want to learn more about this subject, like uh, politics and the importance of geography and everything, uh, the classic It's the war, uh, the classic is to look at the war between Rome and Carthage. The Punic Wars, the history of the Punic Wars. Uh, and uh, to start to read up on, the, on the, them. So 2,500 years ago. And there is to fit enough of a distance to not take teams when you read it. Because if you study today, you will inevitably end up with some people are the good guys, other people are the bad guys. And you need to choose sides. What is in reality, they are just guys with swords trying to make a buck. You could argue that they're all bad at that point. Yeah, it's war. It's politics at its finest. It's bravery and heroism and uh, rape and pillage. Hmm. Uh, any resources or um, like websites or podcasts or uh, books? Oh, that... the, history, the History of Ancient Rome podcast is brilliant. Uh, it's really, really good and uh, quite funny. History of Ancient Rome. You know, I think I – is that where – I mean, he, he talks about the basically the start of Rome to the, the uh, fall of the Roman Empire? Yeah. About a, yeah, I think I started listening to that uh, recently. I got on to like episode two or three, but uh, yeah, yeah it was, it's good so far. They're they're pretty short. They're like five to ten minutes an episode, and yeah, uh, and it covers uh, covers a lot of ground. I mean, they start to swell a bit in size when it goes through the Punic Wars. Um, but basically, what, basically what you have is you, know, you have dynasties, you have Roman dynasties battling with Carthaginian dynasties, so Phoenician, about control of trade routes and riches and wealth. And then all these dynasties are united versus the other country while constantly infighting amongst themselves, which is basically how it still works today. Well, they, they always tell us if those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it, and apparently yep. we have not learned yet, so here we go again. <laughs> here we go again. Well, see you in the future. Yeah, Cliff, uh, thanks for joining us. And, uh, this was great being here. Thank you. Thank you very much, and we'll definitely have you again soon. Thank you. Have a nice evening. Have a nice evening. Have a nice evening. Have a nice evening.